set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says Yahweh of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What I read to you from the gospel according to Luke and from Malachi, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God, who speaks what is good news to those who fear your name and bad news for the arrogant and evildoers, may your good news, bad news message strike home today. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of your worship guide there. Lots of space to write notes. And poke yourself in the chin if you get sleepy or something. So I had recently retired from the U.S. Air Force, and I was a student pastor at my first church in rural Mississippi. My, my head deacon, his name is Marvin, he's still alive, talk to him all the time. My head deacon, Marvin, was the captain of the volunteer fire department, and he prevailed upon me very quickly to go join the volunteer fire department, and I did. And I have lots of hair-singing memories of those days, especially things about going into burning houses and such. Did that more than once. But as I read Malachi 4, one scene comes back to mind. There was a a grass fire that was consuming a farmer's field and it was racing rapidly in the wind and everything. It was racing rapidly in this field towards the farmer's house. And uh, so we were called out and called upon to try and contain the fire. They'd call you on your beeper and all that stuff, and you knew everybody run. It, it was crazy. But we got there, and we worked at it. We had to use an aging pumper truck. A pumper truck is not like a normal fire truck. We had a few of those. A pumper truck is just a big tank on wheels that has a, uh, a tube that you can throw into a stock pond, or you throw into a creek, or you throw into a river, pump the water out while you're trying to put out a fire, because there's almost never a fire hydrant anywhere close to a grass fire. If you didn't know that, I just informed you of something. And so that's what we use, our old pumper truck. Well, we successfully fought the fire and brought it under control and put it out. And then we had to do the next thing, which was to walk through the charred ashen field to make sure that no hot spots were left. Hot spots are hot ashes and and, and embers and stuff that could blow up with the wind and end up in the next farmer's field and start it all over again. We had to walk through the charred remains of the field to make sure there were no hot spots there. And the vivid memory in my mind was how the burnt grass and the burnt wood, and it was everywhere, the burnt grass and the burnt wood and the burnt debris crumbled under our our boots. And then the ash would lift up into the air and and would fill our nostrils in it it soiled and blackened all of our equipment with its soot. It was just all everywhere. It was in our hair and eyes and nose, ears, everything. It was just everywhere. The reason why I tell you that picture, because that's the picture of Malachi 4, verses 1 through 3. 
When he talks about you will tread down the wicked and they will be like ashes under your feet. He's talking about a, a prairie fire. So the picture is there. So just kind of keep that in your mind as we get to that verse. But notice that it's no surprise that the God who said in chapter 1, verse 2, for I have loved you, the God who coaxed his snide people, they're snide, he coaxed his snide people, for, with, for I, the Lord, do not change. And he, he, and he beckoned to them repeatedly, saying things like, return to me and I will return to you. Now he finishes this Massah, this burden, this oracle of the Lord, the word of the Lord, with last things. That's chapter 4, last things. As a warning, but also a beckoning. And so here we go. The first point is the last day. It's verses 1 through 3. Dark, dark and hot. The day is coming when the Lord who makes a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who don't serve Him, chapter 3, verse 18, that the God who makes a distinction will show that all of the impervious disbelief, all of the, the indifferent dismissiveness, all of the impious derisiveness of God's people, for example, all the way through Malachi, that is nothing more than kindling. Kindling to, to light the final bonfire. Now, don't ever do this. I've done this, but don't ever do this. But it's very much like pouring gasoline on a wood pile on a hot summer day and then throwing in a lit match into it. If you've ever done that, please don't. But if you've ever done it, you know it will explosively and hotly blow back into your faces. And that's what he's talking about here. It will blow back in their faces with heat and then separate them from those, verse 2, who fear my name. In fact, I want you to notice verse 1. Who it is that will find themselves as kindling? All the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubborn. What's intriguing to me, very quickly, is that those are the same two classes mentioned back in chapter 3, verse 15. The arrogant and the evildoers, chapter 3, 15. The ones who had turned God's rectitude upside down and inside out. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but put God to the test and they escape. That was chapter 3, verse 15, and now God says, and it will blow up in their faces. Now, my friends, it's no surprise then, and very, quite, very fitting, quite fitting, that John the baptizer takes up this picture in chapter Malachi 4, 1 through 3, and he applies it to his work, and he applies it to the way of the Lord. As he says in Luke 3, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy unto untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. But notice that the last day will be dark and hot against the arrogant and evildoers. But notice it's also dark and hot on behalf of someone else. Verse 2, on behalf of those who fear my name. It's bad news for them and it's good news for these. 
It's against the arrogant. Are you picking this up? It's against the arrogant and evildoers, but it's for the benefit of those who fear my name. And those who fear my name, that's the same people he mentioned back in chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. When it says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So this last day is against the evildoers and the arrogant, but it is on behalf of and for the benefit of those who fear my name. And then notice that in that last day, verses 2 through 3, The picture, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You ever been outside on a cold winter morning and the clouds are so cold they all run off, you know? It's it's bright, but it's cold. I mean, you're coming out of the dark and you look off in the eastern horizon and you see out there and also you notice this thin glow coming over the horizon and then it gets brighter and it spreads out further, and it gets brighter, and it spreads out further, and it gets brighter, and it spreads out further, and the next thing you know, boop, comes up this little round thing, right? And it's brilliant. And if you've been sick, it's marvelously healthy and health-giving. You stand out there and go, oh, it's so good to see the light. It's so good to see the sun. And you see the sun rising with its wings spread out. That's the picture he's using here. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Anybody ever seen calves in the spring? Oh, you need to go buy a farm field somewhere and watch the calves. Because they are the funniest looking things ever. And they just gallivant around, kicking those hind feet, hopping up and down in the air. They look happy. That's the point. You'll be like the calves. Happy! Dancing around, kicking your back heels. Come on, everybody, kick your back heels. Don't do it, please. You'll be moving around. You'll be so excited. That's the picture. And then he goes on. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day when I act, says Yahweh of hosts. So notice then, just two things very quickly, that the sun of righteousness rising with healing in its wings is about the coming of Israel's Messiah and the world's true Lord. Zechariah's prophecy, his song in Zechariah 1, 67 through 79, keeps coming back to Malachi, but it really comes out very, very clearly towards the end of that prophecy when he says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light, to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Malachi is looking forward to the day when here comes the one that we're also anticipating, who's come once, who's coming again. Looking forward with anticipation, the sunrise rising with healing in its wings, the sunrise coming to visit us. But secondly, notice for Malachi chapter verse 3, that the God-fearing will be instrumental in God's last day. Not causative, but part of it, instrumental in it. It's very much the thing that the Apostle Paul was mentioning in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, do you not know that the saints 
will judge the world. And if, you can, if, you're, if the world is going to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? Now, you have to ask the question, as you come to Malachi 4, why in the world is God pointing to the last day? He has no relish in it. As it says in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 33, he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. God is not sitting in heaven saying, I cannot wait to fry him. He doesn't do that. He made all of us to reflect his image. He takes no glee of that day, the bad news part of the day. It's not his joy and delight. He doesn't sit around all the day fantasizing, I can't wait to burn them all. Well, then why would he talk about it then? Because of two reasons. Number one, he wants the God theory to remain hopeful and that fullness of hope to fuel their faithfulness. But on the other side, He wants the dismissive and the derisive, those who've been snide and turned their backs and faces to him, who've been saying to him, but you, you're not allowed, you're uninvited. Oh, an unfortunate slight. He wants them to turn. It's a beckoning. As he says in Exodus chapter 18, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he turns and lives. The reason why he's pointing out the last day is not in glee, but to invite them. Turn. I don't want you to go that way. I don't want that destiny for you. Turn and come this way. And so after declaring the last day, God now makes his last point and he gives his last promise. There's the last two points that you have there. The last point, verse 4 begins with one word. Remember. Right? I love it. Remember. That's so much of the New Testament. Right? 1 Corinthians 15. Remember the gospel I proclaimed to you, and as long as you hold on to it, you're saved. Or 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 13-15, and and chapter 3, 1 and 2. Remember, remember. Not the 4th of November, or whatever. But remember, remember. Most of Christianity is in that word. Remember! This is one reason why God gave us church, by the way, to worship and preaching, so that we could always be reminded. I don't know about the rest of you all, but some of us are really forgetful. You know what I'm saying? And you got to hear it over and 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 over again. And then maybe one day, please, Lord, it'll finally take root. Remember, he says. Remember. But notice what he tells him to remember. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Now why in the world is God sending them back to the law? I mean, as good North Americans, we don't like the law. We don't like God's law. We think that's legalism and judgmentalism. I want to be free. Born free as free. Oh, sorry. I just dated myself. Sorry. Some of you remember that song, right? We want to be free, and by that we mean no restraints. I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, where I want to do it, how I want to do it. I want to do it. 
And even in the church, many people don't want to hear about God's law. Why in the world would God remind them and tell them to go back to his law? We'll see if you can pick it up. I'm going to read some passages to you. One of them we read before the confession of sin. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good, always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. One of the passages we read right before the confession of sin, chapter 10, of Deuteronomy, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. Or you think about the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good the good of their children after them. The reason why he points them back to the law is because it's good. He wants their good. Now you may feel like that that doesn't feel good all the time. I got it. But think about good means more than what you feel. I mean, what's better for you? Sexually transmitted infections or lifelong fidelity? You shall not commit adultery. There's no, there's no domineering restraint in the sense of, I don't want you to have any fun. No, he really wants what's really good for us. Does that make sense? It's for your good always. No wonder he points them back then to the law. It's for their good always. God wants what's good for us. His rectitude. You may remember this word from last week. His rectitude, his goodness, his rightness is really good and really right. In fact, our Westminster Confession of Faith, we're Presbyterians, we have a confession of faith called the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in the 1640s. The Westminster Confession of Faith says such beautiful things about God's moral law and its ongoing applications in the lives of Christians. It talks about the three uses of the moral law. There's one, which is a curb, it's a social curb. It keeps society from going off the rails. Right? Too bad when a society decides to reject it. Bad news. So it's got a social curb aspect. It also drives us to Christ because we see how we failed, how we've fallen short. Hopefully it keeps us humble because we realize we have fallen short. And so it drives us to Christ, the only remedy. And then when we become Christians, it shows us what Christian living looks like. Because this is what Jesus looks like. Jesus, the perfect law keeper. And we're being transformed more and more into his image. That means one day, hurry Lord, we too will keep God's law from the inside out perfectly because we'll be like Jesus. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. Those aforementioned uses of the law, the three I just mentioned to you, are not contrary to the grace of the gospel. They're not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. It's good. It's good for us. As the Apostle Paul himself will say in Romans chapter 7, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so his last point, return to the law. There's goodness waiting for you. 
Quit running away from good, would you, for crying out loud? I mean, that's kind of the, th the idea, right? But there's also the last promise. The last promise, verse 5 and 6, which tells us that Malachi is looking forward to a specific point that's coming. He talks about, behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The promise, of course, is looking forward. He's looking for the day of Elijah, and Elijah does come. Elijah does come before the day of the Lord, and lo and behold, it's John the baptizer. It's made very clear when the angel Gabriel makes this promise to Zechariah. In Zechariah 1, verse 14 through 17, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And even our Lord Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, after the Mount of Transfiguration, points to John and says, Elijah has come. Malachi was looking forward to this day. The coming of the Lord. Now, I want you to look again at verse 5 and 6, and I want you to notice where the application of God's promise settles. That when Elijah comes, he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, etc. And I want you to notice where the application of God's promise settles, where it takes effect. And in Malachi, this is very fitting. Notice the one place he points out where it takes effect is in that first order relationship of marriage and family. The hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the father. Back in chapter 2. Fathers were deserting their wives and thus were deserting their children, leaving them fatherless children. And when the coming of Elijah comes and brings a preparation for the way of the Lord, it begins to turn all of that screwed up first order relationship that's been damaged and marred and mangled, it begins to turn it around. The hearts of the fathers will be turned to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers. Fathers will finally begin to say, oh, I, these are my kids and I need to be involved in their lives and part of that means I'm not going to sit here and discard their wives just because I'm going to go chase someone else. They're going to be committed. Remember Malachi 2. What's the chief reason he says that covenant marriage is to happen? Believers are married believers, he says. For godly offspring. Do you remember that? For godly offspring. It's a surprise. It's really a shocker that it comes out here. The first, the main application, the very first place that, that this promise sets is the restoration of what has been damaged and mangled clear back in chapter 2 and all of the social relationships then that come out of that. The hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the father. I find that last part very comforting. I know too many people, even in my own family, whose fathers left them. And the children doubt their own self-worth. Doubt 
their father's love, doubt their future. And many of them are angry at their parents, their fathers. And they carry that anger with them through the remainder of their life, or a long part of their life. And notice where that application lands. The hearts of the children turning back to the fathers. There's forgiveness, reconciliation. That's gospel stuff there. It's beautiful. And so, my friends, pointing forward to the coming of John the Baptizer, who is preparing the way of the Lord Jesus, and all, and all of this together impacts and remediates our first-order family relationships. Oh, what a way for the last prophet of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures to bring this whole thing to an end, leaving us looking forward to the advent of our Lord Jesus, both his first and his final coming. So my friends, let me try to tie this up here at the end. Two things. Number one, as Malachi draws us in all these four chapters, as he draws us in here in this oracle, he draws us in to a broken family. He draws us into the sick and sickening family disintegration that was going on between the father, Yahweh, and his honorary children. He brings us to see that God does not have a wonderful family. I just want you to know, if you didn't know that, God knows what it is to have honorary kids. Adult ones at that. And here's this family disintegration between the father and his children. He draws us in there to see and experience and to smell and to taste and to hear all of the impervious disbelief, the indifferent dismissiveness and the impious derisiveness. Heard in all of the questions that they asked God that they had no desire for him to answer. And what Malachi should do, first and foremost what it should do, is bring you and me and every one of us to reflect like the disciples in the upper room sitting around Jesus. As they were eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after the other, Is it I, Lord? Malachi should bring us, our time in Malachi should bring us, one and all, not to cross our arms and look down our noses and say, Well, those people are a bunch of losers, but I got my together. No, what it should make us do is fall on our knees and thoughtfully ask, Oh Lord God, do I also turn my back on you as they did? Father, do I also set up barriers and blockades to you with questions to you that I really don't want you to ask? I'm trying to get you out of my life. Dear God, do I treat you just like they did by throwing out my hand and saying that you, you're not allowed, you're uninvited. Do I respond with the same kind of impervious disbelief and indifferent dismissiveness and impious derisiveness? And if you don't know the secret, the answer is yes. Malachi brings us to our knees to see how we are, as righteous as you may think you are that we often are doing the exact same kinds of things. Brings us to our knees. Which, my friends, is what Advent is all about. If you didn't, haven't picked this up, let me help you. Advent is about preparing for the coming of the Lord, recognizing our need for Jesus. 
Anybody here need Jesus? Thank you. I see that hand. Right. Advent is reminding us why we need Jesus. Because every one of us is just like the people of Malachi. But also our time in Malachi should give you hope. Hope in the fact that because of Jesus, you can know that God loves you deeply and thus he loves you decisively. For for God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're going to say it when we do our confession of faith from Colossians chapter 1. We were hostile and enemies in our hearts. And while we were honoring hostile people, Jesus saved us. Malachi should hammer that home for us. God loves you deeply and he loves you decisively and nothing will get in the way of him saving you. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Let light, uh, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. But also Malachi should give you hope. Hope that the one who loves you longs for your good. Longs for your good. And the only way to your good is with him, in him, being close to him, looking to him, giving him heart and hand and whole life change, even opening up your life and your largesse, making it open to him, throwing off the profanity, the irreligion or irreverence, throwing off profanity and infidelity and being what he has made you to be, sons and daughters because of Jesus. Return to me, and I will return to you. As we sang in an earlier carol, God rest ye merry, gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Let's pray. Oh, stir up your power, O Lord. And with great might, come come among us. And as we are sorely hindered by our own sins and by the sins of others, hindered from running the race that is set before us, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you, And the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory now and forevermore. Amen.